lectures for week four. As I said, I'll be doing the content in these three sort of smaller lectures. Uh, the first one was on hypertension, uh, which we discussed a lot of the regulatory mechanisms um, around blood pressure. And then this segment is on coronary artery disease, and our third segment will be on stable angina. Um, as I mentioned in the first lecture, there's a lot of overlap. Um, so there was that first, uh, that one slide that showed as the diameter decreases, hypertension can increase. So keep that in mind while we talk about coronary artery disease. And then, well, spoiler, when we talk about cellular injuries, hypertension can also cause coronary artery disease. So let's start from the beginning. We always start from normal anatomy and physiology because you have to understand the normal or what's there to understand what's going on. And so just a reminder, if we're talking about coronary artery disease, we're talking about coronary arteries. Uh, and they are the arteries that perfuse the myocardium. So of course the blood within the heart, inside the ventricles and atrium, uh, atria are not available uh, for perfusion for the myocardium. Uh, and so we need these coronary arteries, which come out of the aorta, to provide the nutrition and oxygenation needs of the myocardium. So then coronary artery disease is this blood vessel disorder characterized by the focal deposits of cholesterol and lipids um, within the wall of the artery. And it does have, it can form anywhere, uh, but it does have an affinity for coronary arteries. Um, and you can see that there's a left coronary artery and a right coronary artery, um, both branching out of the aorta or coming out of the aorta. Um, and then they both branch out um, as well uh, to perfuse the myocardium. So that's what we're talking about. And when we talk about coronary artery disease and how there's this focal uh, deposits of lipids within the arterial walls, um, what, what does that mean? And I thought a picture is worth a thousand words. Uh, so in this uh, histology slide of a normal coronary artery without disease, you can see that there's a great diameter there uh, for the blood uh, to um, to pass and perfuse the myocardium. On the other side, on the right, there is a coronary artery with a complex lesion, and that um, you can see there's a very small diameter for the blood to flow through and thereby perfuse the myocardium. So, uh, how does this happen? And uh, as you probably know, um, you know, through just public health alerts and, and knowledge, or maybe you've had clients or, or people that you know with coronary artery disease, it takes a long time to develop. It is not something that develops overnight, um, and so there's a sequential um, sort of pathophysiology to it that we're going to talk about. Um, it does start fairly early. It starts with some sort of injury. Um, you know, you can see, and we'll talk about the fatty streak. Um, stage, uh, which is quite early, usually people in their 20s, um, and then it can develop up into the complicated lesion. So we'll look at each one of these stages uh, in a little bit more detail. So uh, the first stage is this endothelial injury stage. Um, and many things can cause that endothelial injury, and you recall that the endothelium is the inner lining of, the, um, of our vasculature. Um, so in coronary artery disease, there's some sort of injury or damage to that inner lining of the coronary arteries. And as I mentioned, it could be the sheer uh, effects or the, you know, the blood flow effects uh, from hypertension. So we saw, how, again, how the decrease in diameter because of coronary artery disease or um, uh, 
artery disease in general can uh, increase hypertension by decreasing uh, diameter and increasing systemic vascular resistance. On the other side of it, uh, hypertension itself can be the cause of the injury that causes the coronary artery disease. Um, other causes of the endothelial injury could be use of tobacco, which uh, has a lot of inflammatory effects, uh, high lipids, uh, hyperhomeocystinemia or high homeocysteine, uh, diabetes, um, the high levels of glucose in the blood, infections, and toxins. Um, but they all result in this damage to the endothelium. And then you have um, uh, the, the endothelium becomes activated um, and you, you, show, you have uh, this deposits of lipids um, into the smooth muscles of the um, art, art, arteries and arterioles. So this is the earliest lesions. Um, you can see that there is some, um, it does bulge into a little bit into the um, artery lumen. Um, and these are the ones that you can see fairly early on, like even in people's 20s, and you can have these uh, fatty streaks. Um, and uh, they are potentially reversible, as I read, um, with diet and exercise, um, depending on how early on it is. And then the next stage is this development of a fibrous plaque. Uh, so you have the fatty streak, um, but then um, collagen covers that fatty streak. And, and you begin with these progressive changes in the arterial wall. Um, so the blood flow that, that impedes on the lumen of the artery even more, and then the blood flow is reduced. The other thing is that this collagen cover uh, can also fissure um, and, and break, and that can uh, then cause further cellular response in terms of inflammation and in terms of platelets, as we shall see. So as I say, you start off with injury, and then you develop this fatty streak where lipids are um, in the smooth muscle, um, and that uh, will have a collagen cap over it, but that cap can fissure or uh, be disrupted. And then you get into the fourth stage um, of the development of these plaques, um, which is uh, where you get a complicated or complex lesion. And this is where that collagen cap will fissure or break for, for a variety of reasons. Um, and then the surface becomes um, uh, attracts platelets and platelets will accumulate there and a thrombus can form. So this is going to do a couple things. It's going to further decrease the uh, area that blood can flow through. Uh, so it's going to narrow the movement of the artery. And also it's going to be unstable because uh, now you have a thrombus or um, the, the platelets and uh, the inflammatory mediators that are there um, that becomes unstable. So that thrombus can move, um, it can, um, it can uh, move while still attached um, and cause a differing kind of flow of blood through that lumen, or it can break off and occlude um, a smaller blood vessel further down the branching of the coronary arteries. And as I say, at this point, um, with, with the exposure of that thrombogenic core, thrombinic core to the circulating blood, there's even more inflammatory response uh, to it. And we'll see that that has an implication in terms of diagnostics. So one homeostatic compensatory mechanism our body uses in, in, in a variety of circumstances, such as this one, is if there's uh, some sort of impediment of blood flow that is slowly developing over time, so there's time to develop, um, collateral circulation, it will do so. 
through formation of these uh, sort of um, secondary blood vessels to circumnavigate um, the occlusion. Uh, so we'll talk about this later when we get to um, liver disease like cirrhosis, uh, but it can also be important for um, coronary artery disease because people can have significant lesions um, and, but if, if they've been able to develop collateral circulation, which takes time, um, then they might not be as symptomatic or symptomatic. One thing about collateral circulation is it's, um, it's like not as effective. Uh, the flow isn't as good as through the primary source if it was open. So if you think of like, you can take the 401 or you can take one of the side highways. Um, if the 401 was working, it would be faster than the side highways. But when it's blocked up, you get off the highway and go another route. Uh, some other points is sometimes people will have uh, symptoms of coronary artery disease, such as angina, but there's no, um, they don't have any significant coronary arthrosclerosis on investigation. So you can see in this picture on the top, there's the coronary artery disease with the open artery, the plaque buildup, and then that sclerosis with the collagen and the inflammation decreasing the lumen there. Um, but you can also have microvascular disease or these small vessels in the coronary um, vasculature, uh, which can also be constricted. Uh, so sometimes people will have um, the symptoms of um, when we get to angina without actual uh, coronary artery disease on investigation. So what are the risk factors? Um, of coronary artery disease, and it's kind of like what isn't a risk factor for coronary artery disease. Um, we talked about the risk factors uh, when we talked about hypertension, and as you know, I've stated, is there's a lot of overlap, so there's overlap in these risk factors too. Um, some of them you will definitely recognize, like smoking, um, which is going to cause that endothelial injury, um, and is also pro-inflammatory um, in, in the vasculature. Um, hypertension we talked about, for example, as a cause of that endothelial injury, um, age, diabetes, stress. Um, so these are, again, some modifiable uh, risk factors such as smoking um, and some non-modifiable risk factors such as age. So you can look those up in your textbook as well. In terms of the clinical manifestations of coronary artery disease, um, quite often it's asymptomatic. Um, you know, you don't know you, it's only on investigation uh, that it, that is determined that people have a lot of plaque um, and a lot of um, disease in their coronary arteries. One of the main um, clinical manifestations, which we're gonna talk about is stable angina. Uh, so we will talk about that in the next mini lecture um, where people uh, have this pain related to, uh, because they have coronary artery disease. Um, but a reminder that coronary artery, artery disease is progressive. It takes a long time to develop. And so people may be asymptomatic uh, for years. So the diagnostic studies for coronary artery disease, and you will cleverly note that this is the same slide I used for hypertension, uh, because again, there's a lot of overlap in terms of risk factors and in, in terms of complications. And a reminder, whenever we're doing diagnostic tests, we think, why are we doing that? And a lot of it is for actually diagnosing uh, the condition, but also what are di uh, looking for risk factors and looking for complications. Uh, so in terms of coronary artery disease, um, you will do blood pressure reading still, but now we're not diagnosing um, that is for the risk factors. 
Um, you will be looking at other risk factors such as are there renal impairments uh, causing the hypertension? Um, are there comorbidities such as do they have diabetes? So looking at the fasting blood uh, glucose. Definitely looking at the risk factors such as uh, cholesterol. Um, you're going to be looking at the functioning of the heart, um, uh, say the 12 lead electrocardiography for uh, signs of any kinds of ischemia, for example. Um, and a reminder about how hypertension, coronary artery disease, and diabetes are comorbid um, and change the targets for treatment. Uh, so we always check both of them. In coronary artery disease, we'll do other uh, tests as well that are more specific uh, to the coronary arteries and the heart function. Um, and that could include a Holter monitor, which is where um, a client wears basically a BCG and a monitor. So similar to the ambulatory blood pressure monitoring that I talked about in the first lecture, but this time they're wearing BCG. Um, they can also note their symptoms in a diary. Um, and then the between the monitoring in the diary, a report is issued about um, uh, any kind of um, dysrhythmias or ECG changes that occur. Um, and those could be worn for all sorts of times, usually 24 or 48 hours, sometimes 72 if you're looking for dysrhythmias that might not be common, um, and they're worn in the community. <clears throat> you can do echocardiograms, which are non-invasive, um, and show kind of the real-time functioning of the heart, like if there's areas of decreased contractility, what the ejection fraction is, and you can also do stress art echocardiograms where then you put the heart under stress, either exercise or because of uh, medications, um, and look at what, what happens to the heart function in those conditions. Similarly, you can do exercise stress tests with an ECG or with uh, medication to increase heart rate uh, to see if there's ECG changes in those conditions. Uh, a cardiac catheterization, which will look directly uh, within the lumen of the um, coronary arteries uh, to look for the plaques themselves. Um, and you can do a CT of the heart, which will um, demonstrate calcifications, which are uh, indicative of the plaques. So those are some of the tests you can do. Um, you know, some that we've also mentioned in the past, like CRP, the, the C-reactive protein for inflammation uh, might be important. Homeocysteine levels sometimes are done by cardiologists. Um, so there are, are other blood tests uh, to look at coronary artery disease, but those are the, the main diagnostics. And again, thinking about if you're doing some for diagnostic purposes, such as the cardiac catheterization, some for risks, such as cholesterol, and some for target organ damage as well. So in terms of the complications, the ones that I would like to point out are the stable angina, which we're going to talk about um, in the next uh, mini recorded lecture for this week. Um, you could get acute coronary syndrome, which is the focus of your lab, um, or heart failure, which we will be talking about in our next lecture. Um, so I will leave it there, and I'm gonna talk about stable angina in our next little mini lecture. This is um, part three of the lectures for week four on the cardiovascular system. Uh, so the first lecture was on hypertension. We spent quite a bit of time talking about the regulatory mechanisms for hypertension. The second level, uh, lecture uh, segment was on coronary artery disease um, and talking about the progression of the plaques and the role of inflammation um, and also how um, it starts with some sort of endothelial injury which could include hypertension. Um, and now we're going to talk about one of the complications of coronary artery disease, which is stable angina. 
So stable angina is a reversible or temporary myocardial ischemia causing chest pain. So the, the whole uh, problem in uh, stable angina can be um, can be uh, stated as that the oxygen demand of the myocardium exceeds the oxygen supply, um, and this is what causes the pain. So, you know, in difference, say, from the um, regulatory mechanisms, which were several, um, when we talked about hypertension, this is sort of one main simple um, construct, that the oxygen demand in the myocardium exceeds the oxygen supply. Um, and as well that the primary reason for the insufficient blood flow or the, uh, the, the problem with the supply um, is the narrowing of the coronary arteries by the arteriosclerosis that we talked in the second part of these lectures. Um, so that the um, arteriosclerotic plaques, uh, you know, the fatty streets and then the collagen cover, that fissures and you get some thrombosis on top of it and get a complex lesion. And the lumen of the coronary arteries is gonna become more and more narrowed so the blood supply is going to be diminished. Um, so here's my slide on pathophysiology of stable angina. But as I say, it all comes down to that the oxygen demand exceeds the oxygen supply. So you have that coronary occlusion because of the arteriosclerotic plaques. Um, and as demand goes up uh, for oxygen and there's not enough oxygen that can be supplied because of the coronary occlusion, the myocardium becomes hypoxic. Um, and this can happen within 10 seconds. And when that happens, there is a decreased contractility of the heart. Um, because of the decrease in perfusion of those areas of the myocardium, which are like downstream to the occlusion, um, there's a decreased availability of oxygen and glucose that's required for the aerobic um, metabolism. So it converts to anaerobic metabolism, which as we know, produces lactic acid. Um, and this is the cause for the pain um, of angina um, and, and why also the pain can be referred because then there's irritation um, of other nerve roots such as the upper thoracic posterior nerve root. With this ischemia um, or uh, lack of oxygen to the myocardial tissues, um, your cells can remain viable for about 20 minutes. After 20 minutes, uh, you can start um, having necrosis of those myocardial cells. Um, so just a pictorial way of looking at it um, is there's the picture of the coronary arteries with the right coronary artery coming out of the aorta and the left coronary artery coming out of the aorta and they branch off into um, other arteries. Um, in stable angina, you have that arteriosclerotic plaque which you see in the top picture on the right um, which may have the, um, the fatty streaks covered by the layer of collagen um, and so there is impaired it's causing occlusion of the lumen of the artery, um, and so there's impaired blood flow through it. This is in contrast to when you have a complex lesion, such as an unstable angina, which you can see before. We're focusing on stable angina, but you need to know the difference. Um, and you can see this plaque has, um, has now had like a fissure and um, has some uh, thrombotic uh, activity and a thrombosis has developed, which is completely occluding uh, the arterial artery. And this may be because like a thrombus, as I say, is dislodged and occluded further downstream, or that it's mobile and moving depending on, um, um, depending on the flow of the blood. Um, so in stable angina, there is that flow, a uh, stable amount of, but diminished amount of blood flow through the impacted coronary artery. 
So, and in my massively impressive command of PowerPoint, I have made this demonstration of how uh, the problem is that um, the demand is more than the supply. So at rest, um, like with that occluded, um, uh, partially occluded coronary artery, uh, having a diminished supply of blood distilled to the occlusion, you can supply so much oxygen to the myocardium. So if the demand is not too much, because you're sitting doing nothing, um, you don't have any pain. We don't have that ischemia, and you don't have the buildup of lactic acid uh, causing pain. However, with activity, the demand for oxygen goes up, but the supply can't because you've got that arteriosclerotic lesion there. And so you do, you have more demand than supply um, of oxygen, and so you end up with uh, ischemia and um, the buildup of lactic acid and pain, and so you have angina. And so the factors that can trigger that increase in oxygen demand uh, can be several. Obviously, physical exertion, like you'll hear people say, oh, I have angina if I walk so far, or I was running to the bus and I had chest pain, things like that. Um, but also temperature extremes or strong emotions could be a trigger or consumption of a heavy meal because of the um, redirection of blood um, to the GI, tobacco use, which is also vasoconstrictive, um, and stimulants, which would increase um, demand for oxygen. So you can, we can say um, that stable angina is this intermittent chest pain, so it comes and goes, it's intermittent, um, that occurs over a period of time, it's a long period of time, but a period of time um, that's, that's fairly predictable. And so it has the same pattern of onset, usually being with activity, um, and the same duration, say, oh, I've had a chest pain for a couple minutes, um, and the same intensity of symptoms. Uh, so, you know, where people have, <clears throat> say, an acute coronary syndrome where they're saying, oh, the pain's 10 out of 10, people can usually say, this is my typical chest pain I get. I get a pain at about four um, in these areas, you know, when I, I exert myself too much. So as I say, it usually lasts three to five minutes. And the key is it usually subsides when the precipitating factor is relieved. So by and large, it's um, triggered by activity and relieved by rest. So when people tell you I was running for the bus, but then I stopped and it went away, uh, that sort of thing. Pain at rest would be unusual. Um, and in terms of the ECGs, um, and as I say, you don't have to be ECG experts, but it is a lot of interest to know what's going on. Um, so if somebody's going in with chest pain and they do an ECG in the ER, um, it'll show ST or may show ST segment depression, uh, which you can see there on your first um, the first line there, or T-wave inversion, where it's going down. And you remember in hyperkalemia, we were looking at the T-waves in terms of uh, um, peak T-waves and hyperkalemia, for example. In this case, you've got T-wave inversion. And you'll be very interested in the acute coronary syndrome uh, lab because I believe um, the, the demonstrator, Sarah, um, has some resources on the meaning of ECGs. So clinical manifestations, we've talked about some with the pain and, and, and uh, some of the factors around the pain. In terms of the location of the pain, it can be um, in various places because of this idea that the lactic acid is stimulating different nerve roots. Uh, so typically it's central or left-sided chest pain, radiating down your left arm, you may have heard these things, sometimes radiating to the neck or to the back. Um, it can also be epigastric. Um, you will see that this is uh, a man in the picture, which I think is so so suitable for those pain uh, locations. Women can definitely and commonly do have pain in the same locations. 
but can also have these um, non-chest pain manifestations of um, angina or uh, indeed of um, uh, infarction. So they can have more things like nausea um, and sweating, which can also be in uh, people as a manifestation of with their central chest pain. It could be also silent, uh, so they don't have any, uh, any chest pain, but it's found on um, ECG. So just to be aware that although those are the typical uh, manifestations of, of stable angina or chest pain, people can have different um, chest pain experiences, such as in different places, or no pain, and it's more like shortness of breath or nausea. Uh, in terms of the pain assessment, it's useful to think of PQRST, um, and that's really, it's nice because they also happen to be uh, the spots in the ECG, so get to remember for chest pain, but really when you think about any pain, it's a really helpful tool uh, to explore the pain with them. So in terms of angina and the clinical, uh, stable angina and the clinical uh, manifestations, um, if we talk about the pain in this way, um, the P is for precipitating factors, um, so what events or activities started the pain or triggered the pain and in stable angina it's usually something that has increased oxygen demand such as physical exertion. C can also stand for palliating um, uh, factors or the things that make it better and in this case rest. And then the Q for the quality of pain um, and in stable angina and ischemia usually it's kind of like a pressure sort of pain or like um, a heaviness. Uh, in their chest, that's the way people tend to describe it, um, as opposed to like a sharp stabbing pain. And the radiation of the pain, as we said, it can, the pain can go to various areas depending on nerve root stimulation, so your left arm, up your neck, into your back, epigastric, um, that sort of thing. So one question is, are you feeling it anywhere else? And then the severity of the pain, so, uh, so usually we use a pain scale for that, so out of one to 10, 10 being the worst pain ever, you know, how would you rate your pain now? In stable angina, uh, people will sort of have their usual pain. Um, you know, so they say, oh, my usual angina is about five, and this was about four, or this was a 10, you know, to give you an indication of the severity of the pain. And then the timing. Uh, so in stable angina, um, it's usually a, a short period of time that you have this chest pain. If somebody's coming in and they're saying, I've had this pain for three minutes, um, you know, that sort of fits in with the stable angina kind of scenario, um, and then it goes away. Uh, but if somebody comes in and says they've had this chest pain for three hours, that's more of a concern. But it's not stable angina. And also, as I said, you can have the silent ischemia, which is uh, this ischemia because of a lack of oxygen, um, <clears throat> past an occlusion because of decreased perfusion. Um, to the coronary, um, to the myocardium. Um, so you might not have pain, so we call that silent ischemia, but it is picked up uh, or confirmed by ECG changes. And so that is more common in people with diabetes because of diabetic um, neuropathy. And a variant, it's still angina because it's still a chest pain because of, uh, um, because of uh, the, the problem with um, perfusion of the myocardium. Um, but a variant kind is Prince metals or variant angina. And the difference here is that it usually occurs at rest, and the problem isn't that there's uh, an occlusion in the coronary artery causing um, an impaired blood supply that so when oxygen demand goes up, it can't meet that demand and you get pain. The problem uh, usually with variant angina is that there's a decrease in supply because of basal spasm. So it's seen in clients with a history of migraine headaches and Raynaud's phenomenon 
and they might not have any coronary artery disease at all, but they're still having those clinical manifestations of pain. Uh, so I want to point that out in terms of when we talk about angina. Um, so when the spasm occurs, um, they get chest pain because they're still having ischemia. Um, and they could have this ST elevation. Um, sometimes it can happen during sleep, and actually sometimes it might be relieved by exercise. So you can see the difference in the, um, P if you did the PQRST with this kind of very angina. So to put it this way, in chronic stable angina, so there's this fixed stenosis or this plaque that's stable, uh, but when the oxygen demand goes up, um, there's not enough supply to meet that demand. So we would call that a demand ischemia. In uh, angina called, caused by vasospasm, it's a supply ischemia. Demand hasn't increased at all, but suddenly the supply is decreased because uh, there's been a basal spasm in the coronary arteries. So if we look at the case that we talked about in the, um, you'll have to recall back, I hope you're watching these in order, um, to Michelle, our 62-year-old with several lifestyle uh, risk factors such as smoking and alcohol use, high BMI, lack of exercise, and hypertension. Um, that uh, was motivated to uh, treat her hypertension um, by quitting smoking um, and decreasing her alcohol intake, et cetera. Um, so this Michelle, the same Michelle, started an exercise program. Um, but she has noticed that in the last, you know, she's been going for a while, and then she's noticed that she does have this sort of pressing central chest pain and some nausea with exercise. But when she stops exercising, it goes away. So what type of angina does Michelle have? probably have, uh, stable, unstable, or variant, and why do you say that? So you can write your answers down, pause and write, uh, and then I will show you the answers. Uh, so she probably has stable angina because it's predictable, comes on with exercise, it's relieved by rest, and she's, she's saying it's in the same location. She says it's the central chest pain and nausea, so the same symptoms, um, so it's very predictable. So the diagnostic studies for uh, chronic stable angina um, probably look remarkably similar to the diagnostic studies for hypertension and for coronary artery disease because of course they all overlap. Um, and as I said in the other lectures, when you're looking at diagnostic studies, you're looking to um, diagnose um, the problem for sure, uh, but also to look at risk factors and complications. So you're gonna, uh, the health history is um, quite important here in terms of uh, what we just talked about, the pain, the predictability of it, the nature of it, how long it lasts, all that sort of thing that we talked about. Um, but also lab studies such as the 12 ECG, looking for ECG changes, particularly when there is pain, uh, chest x-rays to rule out other comorbidities, the echocardiogram to see how the heart's actually working in real time as we talked about before. That exercise stress test, um, uh, the one where they uh, either um, do an echo, a stress echo, or a stress ECG to note changes with exercise, or sometimes with medications that induces a high heart rate, that is sort of key in figuring out if, uh, the supply-demand issues. And then the cardiac catheterization or angiography, which is looking at those coronary arteries to look at the occlusions themselves, and as I mentioned before, the CT of the heart, primarily to look at for areas of calcification, uh, which are related to the plaques. Um, and I mentioned before about C-reactive protein as this non-specific marker of inflammation that's quite commonly done in people with uh, coronary, uh, with cardiovascular disease uh, because this formation of the plaques um, involves the inflammatory process. So chronic elevation of the CRP 
that the, uh, the C-reactive protein is associated with unstable plaques um, and oxidation of the LDL or the low-density lipoprotein cholesterol. So the treatment, um, again, probably looks remarkably similar to hypertension and coronary artery disease because these are uh, interrelated and uh, the way I think of it is along a continuum. So there are those lifestyle changes that we talked about um, when we talked about hypertension in particular, like uh, smoking cessation, improving one's diet, um, improving activity, managing weight, um, and all the difficulties associated with that. Um, there are medications that we'll talk about in a minute, uh, not in any great detail, but uh, you're thinking about all the steps in the uh, development of stable angina um, through hypertension and through the formation of coronary artery disease and how would want would want to um, to treat those things. So like antiplatelets because of the, um, uh, the thrombus development at the site of complex lesions, antihypertensive medications, other cardiac medications, uh, you know, say for dysrhythmias, cholesterol-lowering medications to decrease risk, and managing diabetes. And you can also have procedures such as angioplasty and the coronary artery bypass grafts, which I'll show you pictures of in a minute. And can't help myself, gotta say advocacy, because cardiovascular disease is directly linked with uh, socioeconomic status for a variety of reasons, which you can think about, um, but including um, increase in risk factors, possibly problems with healthcare access um, as well and being able to access treatments. So lots of reasons um, to think about the total care um, of our clients when it comes to cardiovascular health. So as I said, when we think of treatment, this is out of your textbook, but I thought it was pretty good. Uh, So the treatment of stable angina, you can think of the A, B, C, D, E's and F's. Um, so in terms of the A, as I said, those antiplatelet agents because it's related to the pathophysiology of a complex lesion around um, the formation of a thrombus. Anti-anginal agents, so that's when you're having angina. Um, and so you've probably heard of nitro, you know, people spray nitroglycerine, which is a vasodilator. Um, so it's going to improve the oxygen supply of your coronary arteries. And there's also long-lasting nitro, um, like the nitro patches. Um, which again, as a vasodilator, is going to improve um, uh, improve the oxygen supply uh, to your myocardium, as well as ACE inhibitors, which have shown to be um, effective uh, in stable angina. You can have beta blockers as an antihypertensive and also to decrease your heart rate, as we talked about, and other blood pressure medications and control, including the non-pharmacologic, such as diet management, um, to stop cigarette smoking, manage the cholesterol through statins, um, the D for diet and managing diabetes, the E for education and exercise and so important and you'll see there's a lot of cardiac rehab programs that talk about how to exercise safely, um, how to improve your exercise, um, you know at the Y there's cardiac and, and uh, respiratory kind of exercises and programs for people as well as through the hospital's cardiac rehab programs. And then never forget things like the flu vaccine and other vaccines, because if you have one thing, you don't want to get another. Um, So here's a picture of this angioplasty, um, where there's a balloon um, threaded up and into your, usually through the femoral artery, but threaded up and into your coronary arteries, um, where plaques can be um, um, treated with that balloon to, to decrease the occlusion, and they may put a stent in to keep that area open. Uh, so that's invasive, um, but not surgical. Um, 
And then you can have the coronary artery bypass grafts, um, a bypass surgery. And you can see from this picture, the whole problem is that there's an occlusion of your coronary artery. This is to make a bypass for that. Um, and they can use veins, such as the saphenous vein, on the picture on the left. Um, or you can use arteries to do that. So that is all about um, coronary or stable angina and the last of these three lectures on the cardiovascular system. And next week we'll uh, talk a little bit more about the heart when we talk about heart failure.